Call for Action presents Of Consuming Interest, a public service show that discusses scams, deceptive offers, and other consumer concerns. Here's the director of WJLA 7 Call for Action and your host, Shirley Rooker. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is a rather powerful agency within the federal government. They've recently issued a task force report on market solutions to improve consumers' welfare and choice of consumers. Now, this is based on an analysis of data within the agency. And we're going to talk with John Burlaw, who is a senior fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute, about these changes. We're also going to discuss the history of the CFPB, how it was set up, and some of the, the problems that have existed over the time and what the, uh, what the task force looks forward to, to seeing hopefully implemented to serve consumers better. So welcome, John. Uh, this is a very interesting uh, subject because there's been so much controversy about this bureau, uh, which was set up in a rather unique way, wasn't it? I mean, wasn't it an agency among agencies? Uh, yes, yes. Uh, set up by the Dodd-Frank Act of uh, 2010 financial uh, overhaul was, you know, had a, was a uniquely powerful agency. In fact, one time then Judge Brett Kavanaugh said no one except for the president of the United States is as powerful as the CFPB director. It was made it so that the uh, it is a, a single head of an agency sort of like a de- a cabinet department, but until a Supreme Court, until a recent Supreme uh, a court decision, Celia Law, the um, uh, the CFPB director served a six year term without being removable by the uh, by the by the by the president. Um, uh, that has that has changed now, and President Biden was able to um, he asked the uh, uh, Trump appointed CFPB. Uh, director to resign, Kathy Craninger, and she did, and he will, he has nominated his own uh, head of the CFPB, and, and that's good, even if, you know, my organization might not like the policy that, that the, the elected president has control over who runs such a powerful agency and can be held, can be held accountable by, uh, by voters, but also the agency is unique, and I would say uniquely unaccountable, in that it gets its budget Entirely from another federal agency, and not and not from uh, and not from and not from Congress. Given you know the far reach of the agency, it gets its money from the Federal Reserve, um, a percentage of what the Federal Reserve gets in selling dollars. So it really you know when when agencies get appropriations, they have to be answerable to Congress and the oversight. So and and the CFPB doesn't doesn't have that. It's uh, and, you know, sort of an, an entity um, in itself and its proponents say, well, this is good. We're protecting consi- uh, for protecting consumers and be independent. But we point out that, you know, sometimes, you know, when, when an agency is unanswerable to elected officials, that can also mean it's unaccountable. Yeah, I mean, that that means that, that there is no supervision that could be exercised by Congress in terms of um choosing and, and picking what it was going to be able to allow the agency to do. That's a very interesting concept because that's the only federal agency that was set up that way. Is that correct? Yes, with those with those two with those two mechanisms. And the Supreme Court reined in the single director without without presidential remover. Now now we saw that with, with President Biden ask uh, Kathy Craniger to, to leave. Right. Sure. Still has and so 
get the issue of, of you know, not of, of being getting money from the Federal Reserve, which has its own issues with accountability, selling dollars. Well, I know the goal of it was set up, of course, to protect consumers and to make sure that practices involving consumers and finance were on the up and up. But unfortunately, there were some real big holes along the way. Uh, we're going to talk about some of those things, but let's just talk briefly about uh, talk about what the task force. Now, the task force, I'm assuming, was the task force using data that was generated during the Trump administration. So whether or not that task force recommendations will have an impact on the agency going forward is, of course, up in the air. But what were some of the major things that were put forth in the recommendations from the task force? And keeping and I know that our listeners should keep in mind that these recommendations were based on a complete analysis of the data and what the agency had done before. Yes, in fact, the task force was based on what the National Commission on Consumer Finance, um, uh, uh, its earlier, its report, you know, way back in 1972, um, the, the thinking was with Director Craninger that, you know, a lot of things have changed in 1972. What consumer finance laws should be modernized or no longer, make, laws and regulations no longer make sense. And they had, um, uh, um, a lot of good, a lot of, you know, um, eminent scholars on there, like Todd Zwicky of uh, George Mason University, Thomas Durkin, who has for, was a fe- retired uh, Federal Reserve uh, economist, where he produced a lot of uh, good reports on consumer credit for years. And they are looking at, they are looking at things that um, some things, a lot of things are, you know, market oriented and may be, you know, have disagreed with by the new um, uh, leadership of the CFPB, but there are some other just bipartisan and common sense modernization laws, like such as being more inclusive of the for, of the formerly in, incarcerated, making sure they have access to financial services that hopefully everyone can agree with and we can look at things that could be implemented. Well, that would be something that would fit into some of the uh, uh, the justice revision of justice, the reform of the justice system. That would be giving access to uh, people who've served their time and who come out and be, and being able to get credit. Is that part of it? That's part of it. Also, and I didn't mention this specifically, but like I know uh, Kyle Hauptman, who was in a recent forum at, at the Competitive Enterprise Institute, who is vice chair of the National Credit Union Administration and uh, board member and former chairman Rodney Hood have, have talked about that some of the strict prohibitions on the formerly incarcerated um, being hired at banks and credit unions should be relaxed. That maybe if somebody, you know, were like, you know, something were, were convicted of, of, of embezzlement, you, you don't want to, you don't want to hire them. But if somebody were serving you time for, you know, a nonviolent crime of using marijuana, then, uh, then they should, you know, the, the bank or credit union should be able to evaluate, uh, you know, what they will perform and weigh that risk and be able to uh, to hire them without red tape preventing that. That would certainly open up the, the world to some of these people who've done their time and paid the price for whatever they did. Um, yeah. What were some of the other things that came out of the recommendations that were particularly consumer oriented that you think might be bar- bipartisan and make it through uh, the current administration? Well, I'm thinking, and there were recommendations to change laws as well. Um, I am thinking about um, some of the things like um, 
one of the things is industrial lend alternative fintech banks and um, industrial lending corporations where okay, now, let's let's take a step back here for people like me who don't know what you're talking about what is the fintech bank and what is the industrial banks that you're talking about what does that define those for me well uh, fintech banks are just sort of things that might you know might work with your app they might involve cryptocurrency things like peer-to-peer -peer lending or or crowdfunding or or you or you can see these things like now with um uh, the advanced payment app like like um dave and chime or for like with with no fees or small fees you could you could get uh advances on your on 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 your on your hold, hold that thought right there john for just a minute because i'm sorry we have to take a break um let our consume their listeners know they're tuned into of consuming interest i'm shirley rooker my guest is john burlaw he is a senior fellow with the competitive enterprise institute and we're talking about some of the suggested reforms of financial law to to provide greater access and uh, for consumers and uh, based upon uh, an analysis of data that has come from the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. So John, as you were saying, uh, the FinTech banks have a uh, uh, what they were doing, allowing FinTech banks to do uh, a lot of different things that cannot be done right now. Is that correct? Uh, yes, and, and actually getting getting sort of their own charters, even if they don't do traditional things like say, like say, taking deposits if they if they provide credit if they might provide payroll advance um sort of allowing them to become like you know in a, in a national bank for you know and have the, some of the same flexibility that that banks do as far as being being uh, free of some of the say state red tape also the issue some of your listeners and uh, and you may remember when companies like Walmart applied to get an affiliated limited bank charter about uh, 15 years ago, um, and there was this tremendous established banks that opposed it, and then there was sort of this, you know, uh, um, you know, populist the populist movement against 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 it, um, uh, and and it was the uh, resulted in the FDIC putting in a moratorium that is now expired. And but that is not at all unusual for um, retailers and manufacturers to have banks. In fact, it is done in every country but ours. If you go to Great Britain, um, the retailer, the supermarket Tesco has one of the largest banks uh, affiliated with it. You know, Volkswagen auto manufacturer has an affiliated bank that operates throughout Europe through car loans and other things. And it, you know, it generates efficiency, reduces credit card fees, and those are those are passed on to uh, to to consumers. Plus, it can be another source for competition for credit for consumers. Well, I suspect that the bank lobby was against expanding the number of banks available to consumers. Would that be a fair that guess? Is, that is correct, and that is what the task force finds. That it's more, you know. Of the bank lobby and, and establish, you know, sort of protectionism than it is in preserving safety and soundness that these new types of banks do not um, have, uh, um, you know, are not a threat to safety and soundness. In fact, they may enhance it. I mean, right now, the, C the CFPB is on, there are like eight applications for industrial lending companies 
pending approval from the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, including of the, you know, the e-tailer uh, Rakuten, uh, which I think establishing a bank here that they have that, that, that they have they have in Japan. The mm-hmm. CFPB director is on the FDIC board. And this says, well, not mentioning specific companies, it's saying that this we should be able to add this type of competition in the system. And why wouldn't we let, like, say, Walmart or Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway or others be able to use their skills to run a bank? They can't do worse than the Wall Street banks did in the run up to 2008. So why do not have this new competition in the system? Oh, that's a that's a good point. Um, yeah. And do you think that this is likely to happen or is it too far in the future to get a sense of what the administration might do? Well, it's interesting to see. I mean, this is hopefully on like like this is an issue in particular and some other issues that um, uh, say, I mean, in, in Great Britain, it's it's not controversial to say that Tesco has a bank that some that one of the um, Cap, one of the well, the prime minister's officials from the Labour government, who who worked for you know Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, said you know had praised Tesco's bank. So hopefully these applications are pending at the FDIC, and um, someone from the the appointee from the Trump administration, Yellen McWilliams, still um, is still is still the head of that. But they have other Biden administration officials on there. Hopefully they can come up and at least approve approve some of them. Uh, well, you know, while they're while while they're there, so so I am hopeful, and we are trying to make the uh, the pers- at, at the Competitive mm-hmm. Enterprise Institute the persuasive case, you know, to sure. allow these banks to provide more competition. Um, I know Kyle Hauptman said the, the vice the vice chairman of the National Credit Union Administration said at our forum that he is trying to approve new credit u- new newly formed credit unions. We have a real problem in that. Just a handful of de novo or new banks have been approved over the past decades, whereas before it was like like a, a hundred a year all through the through the 80s and 90s. So there really needs and, and Yellen and McWilliams at the FDIC has said that this is going to be a priority to approve new banks. So that's gone, you know, from just a handful to like about a, 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 a dozen or two dozen a year. So hopefully that trend will continue. Yeah, it's uh... I, I can see where perhaps we were doing too much in the past, opening up banks, and maybe the the regulations and oversight wasn't as great as it should have been. I don't. I have no idea. I'm not an authority, but it does seem to me like there's room for some growth and improvement here, and and that some of these task force ideas may be very effective. The bigger thing that I look at is what is the accessibility for consumers. What does it do for consumers to have this type of uh, banking available to them? Uh, and it certainly seems to me that competition is always a healthy thing. Um, now, one of the other things that that um, I know that I read about in a report that you had done actually um, that one of the problems with the the Dodd Frank uh, Durbin amendment was that the the way it put a uh, cost controls on bank fees and then credit well, banks and credit unions could charge to retailers and that sometimes those were below market costs those cap those price caps anyway we're going to um, 
take a brief pause here. And I want to come back and talk about that, John. That to me is very interesting. Um, it, it seems almost anti-consumer in a way because somebody's going to pay the price for it. So anyway, let's just take a brief pause here. Let our listeners know they're tuned in to Of Consuming Interest. I'm Shirley Rooker. My guest is John Burlaw. John is a is senior fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. And we're talking about some financial reforms that may be of use to consumers and what the future is likely to be with in terms of those reforms. So John, going back to the price controls, uh, price controls to me have always seemed like something that maybe we don't wanna do that because it's artificial and doesn't let the market operate. How do you feel about it? Uh, I generally feel feel that that, that, the, that the same way. And I think economists of, of the left and, and right have, have said that you can't um, you know, um, uh, uh, that, that you, you can't really, it, it's not going, it will, it will create new distortions that, um, uh, um, uh, economists on the, there are economists on the left who will say, if you want something more, you know, you subsidize it, but you can't say that the market, you, you, that the market must produce it or can't charge above a certain amount that that would be that, you know, price floors would create surpluses and, and price, um, price controls like even like say even Paul Krugman has said that rent has has criticized rent controls for producing housing shortages if you said if you put a price control say that a bike would be a dollar um you know and, and when when somebody has to make a a manufacturer has to pay three hundred dollars to make it no bikes are going to be produced so it's it's very um uh, it's it's a very inefficient way of, of accomplishing the social good but say with you say there there's a justification for public utilities, but there they they do have an analysis where it's it's a reasonable rate of return. The Durbin Amendment on debit cards from Don Franks does not even say reasonable rate of return or allow for a small profit. It says they must be reasonable and proportional to the actual cost that that banks cannot charge retailers, banks and credit unions cannot charge retailers for debit card transactions unless they are reasonable proportion to the actual costs and that they can't even include some of the fixed costs in that. So, you know, somebody- Yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, somebody, I mean, it costs a lot to, it's not just, I mean, sometimes these are derisively uh, a retailer's lobby, you know, say these are swipe fees, but it's more than just swiping your card. Somebody has to set up an infrastructure and also account for things like ransomware and uh, and all the all the computer hacking, computer viruses, other things. Those things cost money. So what happened after the Durbin Amendment, and what will happen even more if it's expanded to credit cards or or the price controls get even you know uh, more stringent, is that you know is that consumers paid, and in and in a lot of cases the poorest consumers paid through loss of free checking, which many banks and credit unions could no longer do. Um, uh, after they lost this revenue from from retailers and included some of the biggest retailers like Walmart, Walmart and Home Depot. I just mentioned I thought Walmart should get a bank, but I don't want Walmart to get this, you know, break from the from the from the from the government where where on the on the backs on the backs of consumers. Sure. No, I totally agree with you. Um, let's let's talk about one of the things that happened with Wells Fargo, which was such a huge scandal and how they were um 
the people in the bank were using consumers' credit records and all other kinds of things and stealing money from accounts and whatnot. And this went on right under the nose of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, did it not? Well, it 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 did it did under under the under the under the court under the court under the Cordray um, uh, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. It, it sort of came to light right after Kathy Craninger or, or actually Mick, Mick Mulvaney had been temporary director, and he really, I mean, uh, he he fined them a lot, and I think made sure made sure it stopped, and and cons- and consumers and consumers got uh, got you know were 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 comp were compensated for. Uh, for, for this. Um, uh, so it's, uh, I mean, yeah, that's the thing when you're, you're going after, you know, doing regulation by enforcement and going after, uh, different, you know, um, like say auto, le- you know, auto lenders that are out of your juris or, or auto dealers that are out of your jurisdiction. Sometimes you ignore the, the big things. Well, this was a big thing. I know that they've gone after payday lenders, uh, and some would say that that has caused um, the poor people to suffer because of their lack of access to credit. Um, but this was such a huge fail. It was really astonishing. Um, do you think that some of the problems that contributed to this, a lot of it, I think, had, from what I read, had to do with the politics, the internal structure, and a lot of other things. Do you think a lot of those issues are being resolved and that the agency will be on a stronger footing? Well, a stronger footing. I don't mean it literally stronger. I mean on a more even keel footing. I am hopeful that there will be um, under and and um, Rohit Chopra has hasn't been confirmed yet. I'm I'm hopeful that there will be more clear rules when there's a clear violation rule that it will be punished, but that we will not have something by regulation by guidance document or what Richard Cordray, um, uh, Obama's appointed director, actually said he would do by regulation by enforcement. There was the case that a court ultimately and, and unanimously um, reversed um, when um, um, the, when the, uh, when, when, when the, uh, w- with PHH where he said they were violating a law that ha- for 13 years when the previous regulator, the Department of Housing of, of Urban Development mm-hmm. told them they were in compliance and that they had to pay penalties, that really doesn't serve anyone when you, you, you have a lack of due process and you can invent like uh, rules, you know, being violated just because, you know, you don't like them rather than having rules set forth, having them put forth by notice and comment and then punishing the violations that occur. And, and that are actually put, that are actually enforced and enforced in a regular even-handed basis, I think. That yes, yes. And I'm also what you're saying to us. Yes. Well, I, I can't believe that we're just about out of time. Um, fascinating discussion. Very interesting. I did a lot of reading about the Bureau, and boy, it really did have some powers there for a while until the Supreme Court decision that gave the president the power to uh, to actually remove the, the director after um, there was a change in administration. And that was a long battle. But at any rate, the agency does a lot of good and their their goal, the reason they were set up was to help consumers and let's hope that they continue on that path. So anyway, John, we really do thank you for joining us. Another enlightening discussion on 
what's going on in our financial world. We thank you very much for being with us. You've been listening to Of Consuming Interest. My guest has been John Burlaw, who is a senior fellow with the Competitive Enterprise Institute. And the organization is a nonprofit organization. And their website is CEI.org. If you want to read about some of these issues and uh, figure out what's going on in some parts of the world. But anyway, John, again, thank you so much. And thank our listeners. You're listening to Of Consuming Interest right here in the Federal News Network. I'm Shirley Rooker. Thank you. Of Consuming Interest is a public service program presented by WJLA 7 Call for Action, hosted by Shirley Rooker. Call for Action is an international nonprofit network of hotlines which offer free and confidential assistance. If you have a complaint, contact Call for Action at 301-652-HELP. That's 301-652-HELP. To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the Sleep Number Bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my Sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 Smart Bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed. Plus, special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.